Welcome! I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this installment of Six-Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard Prosh or I get to hang around the virtual Six-Gun Justice podcast corral, talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. With me today is G. Wayne Tillman, whose Guns for Wells Fargo series is currently writing atop the Western bestseller list on Amazon. Wayne's very background includes working as a bank security director, a deputy sheriff, a security contractor, and an FBI unit chief. These are all jobs for which his heritage has uniquely prepared him, as he has a direct ancestor who was a sheriff in the New World in 1680. He also has an ancestor who was a lawman who brought the desperado of song fame to justice, and a mother who was a counterintelligence operative. All good stuff for a writer to have. Welcome, my friend. How are you? I'm great, Paul. How are you doing? Terrific. I am so impressed that your Guns for Wolf Fargo series, which is on book four right now, is doing so well on the Amazon bestseller list. Was that a surprise to you? It was certainly a pleasure. I thought from the onset that it had a good storyline. I'm really pleased with the way that it's worked out. A little surprised? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't expect the number one. But I think the story has got some good appeal to it. Absolutely. And it's a true Western at its heart. Did you have that in mind when you created the series? I really did, Paul. And what I really wanted to do is take a Western, take my background as an investigator, and see if I could apply some of the trade craft that detectives use to a detective. In the 1880s, where this takes place, it starts in 1882, detectives relied primarily on their snitches, on some kind of strong-arm tactics, and there was good logic, but there was very little technical or forensic detecting. In doing some research, I found out that Jim Hume, who was for years the head detective of Wells Fargo, really set the pattern for things like ballistics and using ballistics to determine who shot whom and actually using it in court and getting juries to find somebody innocent or guilty, as the case may be, depending on the ballistic evidence. I found out they were using police lanterns, which had flashlight capabilities so that they could track people at night, things like that. And so I applied all of those to John Pope, the primary detective, until we get into the second novel, and then he's got a former Pinkerton female detective. And that's an interesting thing, because Pinkerton is the agency that usually gets all the credit for innovative law enforcement back in those days. And my research, like yours, shows that Wells Fargo was way above the Pinkertons. Pinkertons were Johnny-come-latelys. I believe that, too. And not to take anything away from the Pinkertons, they had some pretty bad press, even in their heyday, blowing up Jesse James' family home and not getting Jesse or Frank James, but causing their mother to lose her arm. And I think one or two family members may have been killed in that. And in some of the strong arm stuff when breaking up unions hurt them a little bit. But at the same time, they did a lot of innovative things. Like you say, maybe not so many as Jim Hume and the Wells Fargo guys did. It seems Wells Fargo and their investigative techniques had far more subtlety. Pinkertons were very heavy handed. I think that's a great analogy. At Wells Fargo, in addition to the subtlety, Paul, they had a real integrity. Even as a company, I don't own any stock in Wells Fargo, and I'm sure it's somewhat different now than it was then. But if you were on a Wells Fargo stage and you got robbed and you lost your granddaddy's gold watch or whatever, they replaced it. 
They covered any losses sustained by any passengers, whether it be a stage robbery or whatever. Wells and Fargo knew that they were spending more to detect than they were recovering. And they decided that was okay. They wanted to establish a reputation that we're safe to ride. We'll take care of your treasure. And they did. We recently did a piece on Bat Masterson. And Masterson was a really quick draw gunfighter. But he didn't kill as many people as some of the more notorious gunfighters did, even his good buddy Wyatt Earp, of course. But the thing that Bat Masterson had, he was a master, forgive the pun, at preventative measures. He would stop trouble before it started. And that was one of his gifts that he had as a lawman. That was the way it is with Wells Fargo. They anticipated problems and addressed them before they happened. That's exactly right. Bat Masterson was a really honest career lawman. He finally gave it up after serving, I think, as U.S. Marshal in New York, of all places, and died at his desk at his typewriter as a sports reporter for a New York newspaper. He was revered as a sports writer because he covered the boxing scene, and he had this tremendous knowledge of boxing and this genial personality everybody got along with, including the rough-and-tumble crowd. He could fit in with both the gentility and the average people. Exactly. And if you look back at his early history, he and his brothers and my relative Bill Tillman and Pat Garrett and the Irks were all buffalo hunters in early Dodge in the 1873 era, somewhere in there, maybe 71 to 74, 75. And most of them stayed on and took law jobs in Dodge City. Tillman was the city marshal of Dodge City for four or five years after it had calmed down a little bit. Now, to get back to your Guns for Wells Fargo series, in the second book, John Pope, your main detective, actually joins forces with a female ex-Pinkerton agent. Absolutely. And people will probably think he did this for a romantic interest. Maybe 25%. 75% was I had done a little bit of research on Pinkerton and particularly on the fact that Pinkerton, for whatever his fault, was really pretty open-minded and pretty progressive in the classic definition of the word progressive. And he brought in Kate Warren, who he thought was applying to be a secretary. And in the interview, she talked him into making her a detective. And she was the lead female detective of a whole cadre of female detectives in the 1870s. She died very young. I think she died at about 38 or something of maybe pneumonia. But she set the pace and he backed her up and he defended him a great deal. Because there was a lot of prejudice towards female detectives. The rest of society wasn't ready for women in that role. And oftentimes Pinkerton was criticized for using women like it wasn't playing fair. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's like when the Germans sued the Americans in World War One for using 1897 Winchester shotguns in the trenches. It's not fair. You're killing us too easily. Some of these female detectives could get information that a man could never get. And I think it's still true. Some of the best FBI agents I knew, some of the best detectives I knew were women. With this female ex-Pinkerton agent, did you have a specific character in mind or did she just pop fully blown into your imagination? She was fully born. The most I had to do is come up with hair color, eye color, and that's about it. I had her in the back of my mind for a long time. I wrote a novel about a female detective in modern-day Florida. 
which is I walk back both in Kindle and paperback. And I got so interested in what she was able to do that men weren't necessarily able to do in talking to people and finessing things and handling violent situations without necessarily having to shoot somebody, that I thought, let's take her back to the old West. And the genesis was probably there, Paul. I can see that. With the Gun for Wells Fargo series, you've also done something interesting in that you have spun off the character of Mountain Man Israel Pope, which is a ancestor to John Pope, your main character. How did that come about? Partially because my own maternal grandfather was probably the greatest influence on my life. He was pushing be all you can be before the army ever invented the slogan. John Pope was a cowboy who became a policeman who almost immediately became a detective. He couldn't have done that without some background. And so we've got this grandfather who raised him, who taught him how to track and how to shoot and how to think logically and and taught him what you and I would call tradecraft or OPSEC back when those terms weren't even in use. And everybody that I talked with liked the character as much as I did. So I gave him a pretty big role as a mentor, an advisor, a backup in all the books, and then now have written Israel Pope, Mountain Man, about him and how he evolved. All of the books in the series go one, two, three, chronologically. But if you read them in order, where one stops, the other one immediately begins. And the Mountain Man book takes the Israel Pope character all the way up to being the grandfather in Northern California when John Pope is a detective and then a sheriff. And so it's all chronologically straight, I think. There's a continuity to all the characters and all the stories. That's what I was groping to say. (laughs) And you did it better. (laughs) I, I salute you, my friend. You started out writing modern-day thrillers, and then you moved into westerns when an opportunity came up to write one of the books in the Avenging Angels series. I did. Actually, I had written two westerns as independent books before that. One was historical fiction about Bill Tillman, which I really set out to write as a biography. I didn't have footnotes. I didn't have validated quotation marks. I just called it a fiction novel. And I wrote one about a Texas Ranger. But he was a modern-day Texas Ranger. The first real Western was for you, and it was an Avenging Angel series. And it was as as much fun to write as any book I've ever written, Paul. I still like that book. It's still one of my favorites. People want to find that book. It's Avenging Angels, Wild Bill's Guns, under the pseudonym of A.W. Hart, H-A-R-T, which was a group pseudonym used for all the books in the Avenging Angels series. But I think that's one of the most fun ones because of the concept of involving Wild Bill Hickok. Thank you. I took a different look at Wild Bill in it. Many people don't realize he was a very prolific letter writer. He wrote to his wife. He wrote to her. He wrote to his brother almost every week. Despite the way he's portrayed, was a fairly mild-mannered, non-braggadocio type guy and a likable guy. Everybody that knew him liked him unless he was shooting at him. So I maybe portrayed him a little differently than many Western authors did. Not saying better, not saying more correct, but I see him differently than perhaps other people do, Paul. Do you see your overall approach to the Western as different? Maybe. I think as I look back on the Westerns I've written, more of the protagonists, more of the heroes are nice guys. And they're nice guys that can be stone cold killers if they're pushed to it, but they're not bad boys or anything like that. 
They're not ex-outlaws trying to turn their lives around, which was a favorite thing, particularly in the Zane Gray, Louis Moore genres. So maybe that's different. I try to throw in a little bit of logic. And that's not to say my peers don't do that, because some of them do it extremely well. But if it's possible to put a horse on a stock car and a train and take the train 300 miles instead of riding it, my heroes do that. And I think in the real life, that's what happened, too. I don't think guys other than the James gang would get on horses and ride halfway across the country. I think they would use whatever was available to them to be the most efficient. I try to throw some different firearms in. Not too many people westerns with a Merwin and Hulbert revolvers. And in the Wells Fargo series, a lot of times they use break-open Smith & Wessons instead of the classic Colts. So maybe that's different. Taking advantage of what's available to you, for instance, getting on the stock cars to cover far more miles than just riding your horse across it, applies to any number of books and genres that we write. I guess what I'm getting at here is when you write your thrillers, you have to also deal with all of the modern day technologies. When you write westerns, there's a limited amount of technology that you have to deal with. But does that make it easier to write a western than to write a up-to-date thriller? On the surface, it certainly does. In reality, I do research and try to find out about things. I've mentioned the Dietz Police Lantern. Who ever heard of a Dietz Police Lantern? I had, at least before I did the research. They didn't use uh, fingerprints, but they used skull measurements, things like that, from a French system, I believe. As I mentioned earlier, Jim Hume at Wells Fargo came up with the whole study of ballistics. So I try to look for those types of things. The biggest thing I have to worry about in thrillers is not violating some sort of thing that's still classified. Because of your FBI background, you have to be very careful about what you write because you have to have these books approved before they can actually be published to make sure that you're not giving away anything that's classified. Yes, exactly. And that's much less of a problem when you're writing something that predated the FBI by 40 years or 50 years or something. But in other ways, and I'm not equivocating on myself, but it is easier to write Western because it's just a flat-out adventure. You don't have to worry as much about, could he do that? Was he supposed to advise this person of his rights? How will this fly? That had made a difference maybe in the West, but a lot less difference than it does now. I really try to depict the fact that if you're riding 200 miles across Wyoming and it's a blizzard, it's miserable. I think most Western writers show that, but I really get into it and let them suffer. And I try to figure, what are they going to do? Where are they going to find wood for a campfire? They're on the prairie. But here's my question. And I ask this because I am what they call directionally dyslexic. I don't know my left from my right. It's been a curse all my (laughs) life. My wife says, turn left here. No, your other left. How did they know how to get from one place to the other when they're covering 200 miles across Wyoming? It's fascinating to me. It is to me, too. The American Indians did that way before the guys we're talking about. And they just did it. I can't really explain it, Paul. It's a good question. I don't think they followed the stars. Sometimes they were probably wrong. There's a skill set that seems to have been lost through civilization. There was these types of things, a knowledge of which way to go and the knowledge of the paths and the trails. It seemed to be instinctive back then. And we've lost that today. I think you're exactly right. 
Interestingly, people in really rough urban areas have kept some skill sets that the rest of us more suburbanites have lost. I think back to when I was a 25-year-old director of security of a fairly good-sized bank. Don't ask me how I got there because I haven't figured it out yet. But one of my mentors was a soon-to-retire massive guy who was a legendary FBI agent. And he talked about the types of things we've lost and gave me so many little hints. Like, if you feel the hairs rise on the back of your head, listen to it. There's danger somewhere, and there's something in your DNA that's telling you, be careful, get ready, it's going to happen, pay attention. Little tricks like you could always better tell a forgery in comparing signatures real to forgery if you turn them upside down, because then you can see the differences. If they're right side up, you're looking at the similarity. A lot of things like that. But he really focused with me on bring back these skills men had before we became so civilized, the things you're talking about, Paul. Now, will we be seeing more from John Pope and Gum for Wells Fargo? I think so. I like the character a lot. The fact that he and Sarah are progressing, I don't think it's going to slow either one of them down. They may change venues. They may change jobs. Who knows in the future? But I think it's a character that may have some staying power for me. I'll stick with it. Now, people old grandpa in there, too, because Israel Pope may be one of the most interesting of all the characters. I think it's the Israel Pope book that really pushed the series to the top of the bestseller list on Amazon, because it's when that book came out that began to happen. It could be, and it's a backstory on John Pope, the detective. And so maybe that's why. And I know you're going to take a break from Westerns and write another thriller. That's what you're doing right now for Wolfpack. And I'm looking forward to reading that. But I'm also really looking forward to you getting back to your Westerns, because I think you have a true talent for telling those tales. Thank you, sir. I'm halfway finished. McLaughlin number four, Blood Sky, is the working title. And we'll see what my editor thinks of that. My editor's the one that I think is the real guy when it comes to titles. (laughs) (laughs) That would be me, yes. Yep, that would be you. They seem to be working, and I am forever in your debt. Thank you, friend, and I appreciate you being here with me today. I wish you the best of luck and continued staying power on the Amazon bestseller list with your Westerns. Thank you, sir. And I appreciate the opportunity to be here and to work with Wolfpack and with you. What a great organization. Thanks again. Thanks, buddy. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at sixgunjustice.com for information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations, Six Gun Justice speed listens, and full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and keep your horse pointed towards home. Adios. We're out of here. Let's ride. (laughs) 